and welcome to the Conservative Atheist Podcast. I'm your host, the Conservative Atheist, and we're going to be discussing some of the hottest, controversial, and in many cases considered taboo topics. We cover every issue you've ever considered, and several you haven't even thought of, from the unique perspective of a conservative atheist. Enjoy! Hey mate, Luke Ford here, talking once again with the Conservative Atheist. It's a new podcast that uh, just started to get to know its contents. I was on the show Thursday, we did a simulcast, and uh, I've got on the line with me Patrick, the founder of the Conservative Atheist uh, podcast. Patrick, so when did you start this podcast and why did you start it? Uh, I started it maybe... Mm, maybe nine months ago. And uh, the reason why I started was because, um, I don't know, I had a lot to say. And, uh, you know, I'd done radio many, many, many years ago, many years ago. And so I was in, in radio many years ago. And, uh, but, but of course, there's a lot of constraints in radio. And uh, on podcasting, there's not as many. You know, there's certain things you can't say, obviously. There's, there's limits to everything. But um, it, it freed me up to express my opinions and my views unfettered and, uh, and you know, I, I just able to express how I feel about the world and politics. And it's mostly socio-political uh, discussions we have, but we discuss a, we can discuss a whole range of, uh, of things. And so tell me, tell me about uh, Timothy, your co-host. Timothy is no longer with me. Okay, but how, how many but he, shows he, did you, how many shows did you he, do together? We did many many shows. I couldn't give you an exact number, but we've done we've done probably 150 shows at least. Um, we do at least five days a week, um, Monday through Friday. They they you know they drop anywhere from um, they we drop them you know Sunday night into uh, Monday morning uh, after 12:01 Eastern Standard Time. The last one drops Thursday night into uh, Friday morning. Uh, again, Eastern Standard Time, and that and that's uh, sometimes we have bonus shows on the weekend, but uh, they last anywhere from an hour to two hours to three hours or more, all depending on the topics that we're discussing, depending on the person that we're interviewing, uh, depending on the co-hosts that are involved, because I have I have different co-hosts that come in and fill in sometimes, and uh, so it's uh, but it's mostly socio-political, it's it's social issues, it's crime, it's uh, politics, it's things like uh, oh illegal immigration, things of that nature. Okay, so I I asked you to tell me about Timothy. Can you tell me anything about his background? I, I can't tell you a whole lot about his background. Uh, he's, uh, I, I'd rather not, actually, to be honest with you. Okay, how many if, co-hosts if you have mind. you, do, do what you like, uh, how many co-hosts have you had? Uh, the two co-hosts that I have that fill in besides Timothy, uh, is uh, Mendez. He's from Brazil. And then I have somebody, Samuel, and uh, he is from uh, uh, Eastern Europe. And how did you get these people? 
I met them online. We 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 used to use this, uh, and I never I really don't use it anymore. But there was this uh, app called Clubhouse, and it's a it's a uh, audio app. You go in, you don't you know there's no there's no video to it, but you go in and you have conversations in different chat rooms on different topics, and, and that's how I met uh, that's how I met both Samuel and Mendez. And they they expressed some interest in being on the podcast, and so I you know I said hey, okay well you know when Timothy can't be around you guys can fill in. So I've run through a lot of uh, co-hosts myself, and this is a very common phenomenon, particularly in the dissident sphere. Seems almost nobody can maintain a co-host for very long. Uh, do you, Do you have any thoughts on why that is? Because, well, for one thing, it, you have to be dedicated to the podcast. If you're not interested in doing the podcast, if you don't understand why you're doing the podcast, um, you know, then you're not going to be inspired to be on all the time. Other things are going to take precedent over you being involved. And uh, you really have to find somebody who's um, stable and uh, reliable and mature enough to, to be a part of the show. And, and, uh, of course, you know, you're going to butt heads with people sometimes and that's going to cause conflict. And it's just very difficult. It's very difficult. It's like radio. Radio is, is the same way. There's, there's people that partner up for years and years and years and do it really well. But most people, there's, you know, there's constant revolving door of co-hosts and, uh, and um, you know, a lot of people move different markets. That's the, that's the one best. That's the one great thing about podcasting. You can do it from anywhere. And uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, the, the radio station changing formats or them deciding where they want another host. Uh, you do it right from your home. You do it from wherever you're at. And uh, it's you reach a lot of people. Okay. And so what have you learned from doing a regular podcast? Uh, I, I, I've learned that... Uh, I mean, I've learned that it, it, it's liberating to be able to express your opinions openly um, to the world in a way that in the past, nobody could. In the past, it was if you were a, a TV personality or if you, were, if you worked for a radio station, then you could get your opinions out to the world or you could at least get your opinions out to the market you were in. But with podcasting, that's the best thing. You, I, I'm heard right now. I have, I have a lot of listeners. I, I'm heard on over almost 60 platforms and I'm heard in almost 60 countries around the world. A lot of the countries shocked me because I, I don't even know how many people would probably speak English in those countries, but apparently there's got to be some. And so it's interesting, the idea that people are listening to this on a regular basis uh, from around the world in, in countries I would never think of. So how did you arrive at the title? Conservative atheist. Conservative atheist. Well, I've been a I've been a conservative atheist since at least my teen years. I've been an atheist since I was about twelve years old. Um, I'm half Jewish. My mother is a Jew. She's still alive, um, and my father is dead. He was a Christian, and uh, so and I've been an atheist. I've probably been an atheist before I was twelve, but I just didn't really know what an atheist was. And so I would say around 12 or so, that's when I really realized, hey, I'm an atheist. This is what I am. This is what I believe. But I'm not anti-religious. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I have a major bone to pick with Islam because of the violence and the, and the oppression and, and all that. 
But other than that, any of the other world religions, whether they're the, the two Abrahamic religions, Christianity and Judaism, or whether they're uh, you know Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever, I don't have a problem with it. As long as there's no violence involved, and as long as you're not trying to force other people to believe the way you believe, I'm good with it. Unfortunately, my fellow atheists are just as fanatical and just as just as opposed to other people's beliefs, if not more so than most most uh, religious people that they complain about. And, and how so I, you know, from, yeah. from, well, well, for many years, people would hear what I have to say. They would hear my opinions, and they would assume because of my opinions that I was a Christian or they would find out I was an atheist and they would, they would assume I was a liberal. And so I started with the moniker conservative atheist. And I probably started with that over 20 years ago. And it, it, it was to be as a kind of a shortcut so that I didn't have to explain myself every time that people got confused. So a moniker you're using on social media. Yes. Okay. And how important is your atheist identity to you? None. It's not important at all. The conservative part is very important. Mm-hmm. But but the atheist part is just an afterthought. Mm-hmm. And you talked about having a background in radio. Talk to me about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, I worked at various stations. Like I said, a lot of times you have to switch markets. It means you might have to switch locations and what city you're in. Um, some sta- some companies will have several stations under one roof. Um, and if they decide to change formats, you're, you know, you can try to, you can try to switch formats with them, but it's, it's difficult. And it's just not, unless you're a Howard Stern or an Opie and Anthony or, you know, somebody really big. Um, you know, um, Dennis Prager, Michael Medved, somebody, somebody big, um, you're going to have to switch markets. You're going to have to change. You're going to have to travel. You're going to have to go to different jobs. It's not, it's not what people think it is. I don't think. And so, um, again, that's why I, I really like podcasting. So what, what formats did you work in? News talk. Okay, and you were you doing more of the news or more of the talk? More of the talk. Okay, and do you do you feel comfortable sharing what cities you worked in? Um, no. Okay. No, because well, I, I have a very I have a fairly recognizable voice. Okay, and how how long were you in radio? Mm, Fifteen years. Okay, and uh, what what was some of the primary lessons you, you learned about producing good radio? Well, obviously sound qualities, but but you know the main thing is I I was talking, I was in the booth. The person that did all of the you know the sound checks and made sure that everything sounded good, that was the guy inside the the uh, you know that was the, the board op. He he, I had very little to do with that. Um, there's a lot of politics in radio. Um, and you have to watch what you say. Um, I worked for a couple of um, conservative stations that let me go because they found out that I was an atheist. They didn't say that's why, but the one had two stations. Uh, one was one was uh, you know was the political station. The other was the religious station. 
And when they asked me if I wanted to go to the religious station, and when I revealed that I was an atheist, um, they decided that they no longer needed me at that station, which I'm sure is probably illegal, and I probably could have done something, but uh, that's not how I work. So my question, once again, it was, what did you learn about producing good radio? And you didn't really answer that question. Well, just, you know, be clear and concise when you're speaking. Um, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I'm not fully sure what I understand. I'm not fully sure what the question means. What did you learn about making a good radio show? It, it doesn't seem like a complicated well, question. Yeah, yeah, it's not that complicated of a question. It's basically the same as podcasting. You just... You, you come up with really good topics. Um, you open the phone sometimes when you want somebody to call in that you can have a, you know, if the, if the conversation gets a little slow, you open the phone so that some people can, you know, they can comment on the topic. And uh, you do a lot of promotions. So, I, I mean, the different topics depend on the, you know, a lot of de- depends on what's going on, you know, currently. Hello? Ah, hang on. So, okay. So, let me read to you from something. Your sound cut uh, out for a second. Yeah, I'm back. So, back in uh, 2000, in around 2008, uh, Dan Shelley, former news director, assistant program director at Milwaukee's WTMJ, talked about his career working with his station's uh, right-wing talkers. And he says, to succeed, a talk show host must perpetuate the notion that his listeners are victims and the host is the vehicle by which they can become empowered. The host frames virtually every issue in us-versus-them terms. There has to be a bad guy against whom the host will emphatically defend those loyal listeners. Does that ring true to you? Yes. Yeah, I I have no problem with that. I I consider liberals the bad guy. I don't know if you have been paying attention to the d- different debates that are going on uh, in Congress. But uh, there was a, a fairly recent you know, big debate on, on whether you sh- they should have to say the, the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, the Pledge of Allegiance that they were sworn to uh, to represent, yet they didn't, uh, you know, the, the liberal Democrats were opposed to it. So I, I consider the liberals the bad guys. I really do. I, I consider the Democrats. I consider the left. I consider leftists the greatest threat to not just the, the United States, but to Western civilization. They undermine Western civilization intentionally. They're more worried about what's going to happen in the Ukraine than they are what's going to happen in the United States. They're more worried about the sovereignty of other nations than they are of securing our own borders. They have absolutely no no um, sense of patriotism whatsoever. And I'm not saying blind patriotism, but surely you should love your own country if you're going to be a member of the of the government. So this this formula, the talk show host must perpetuate the notion that his listeners are victims. Does that ring true to you? Is that key to successful, particularly right wing talk radio? Yes. Talk to me more about why it's important to to use the the framing that your listeners are victims. Well, because it gives it gives the person a motivation to listen. It gives them it gives them hope. They see problems in their own lives that they don't have a solution to. They see high taxes. They see the crime going through the roof. 
They see liberal cities and liberal liberal uh, liberal uh, oh, uh, mayors and and uh, prosecutors uh, doing cashless bail, refusing to uh, put people in in jail for serious violent crimes. They see gangs of of, of criminals going into stores and and uh, and just completely destroying the stores and robbing everything they can get their hands on. You know, the violence in the streets, and it's only getting worse. And they need somebody to come to that's going to, to that they realize is representing them, that's going to, that has their best interest at heart, that feels the pain that they feel. But it's not ignoring their needs the way the, way the government has been doing recently for quite some time now. And do you think it'd be possible to produce compelling, say, nationally syndicated uh, right-wing talk radio if you didn't use this framework? No. Right, no, because every, everyone's using it. So obviously this is the framework that, that works. I, I can't think of any well, exceptions it's, it's, in right-wing talk radio. Yeah, it's not, it's not just that. It's, I believe in this. It's not like it's it's just simply a format that I go by because I think it works or it brings in listeners. I'm I'm saying the things that I believe. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't say it. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't be a part of it. I never would have, and I I, I wouldn't now. Can you can but you the be? The whole point is, is I believe what I'm saying. Yeah. Can, well, I, I I believe that the left is destroying this country. I believe that the left is is supporting socialism. I, I believe that the left wants open borders. Uh, I, I, you know, and uh, you, you know, how many videos on YouTube do you see of uh, leftists being interviewed saying, um, you know, free speech, that was a good idea for a while, but meh, let's, it can be jettisoned now. It can be jettisoned. We, we no longer need it. Hate speech isn't free speech. Well, if you can only say the things that everybody agrees with, then that's not free speech. Now, no, can, they, mm-hmm. go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, can no, I'm be, just saying they, the leftists don't care, do not care about the sovereignty of this country whatsoever. Can, could you be successful in talk radio saying things that you don't believe, just putting on a show? Of course you could. Oh, you, you can. Could do that, you could do that. You could do it. Well, you could do it. You could do it in anything, couldn't you? I, I don't know. That's if, an open question. I mean, if you're if you're a good enough BSer, you can you can you can do it with anything. So who who do you think is some um, successful right-wing pundits, talk show hosts, TV hosts who don't believe what they're saying? Sean Hannity. I don't like Sean Hannity. I think he's full of crap. I don't I, he's 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 uh he's just a lot of puff. And you he's, don't he's, think he's, he he's, believes you don't think he believes what he's saying. I, I don't. Th- I don't think he believes what he's saying to the extent that he says he believes it. So I don't think he's as passionate as, as he claims to be. Yeah, that's yeah. just my opinion. I'm not a mind reader, but right. So I think you're touching on something important there. That the biggest difference between an everyday conversation 
and a talk radio conversation or even a good YouTube conversation or a good podcast is that in talk radio or in podcasting, you are performing. And so you need to come with approximately 10 times as much energy and conviction and passion as you would in an ordinary conversation. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, of course. Of course. There's an entertainment value to everything. If you're not, in, if you're not compelling and not just compelling the way you would be to a, somebody that you know um, that you're a, that's a friend of yours that you're having a conversation with, but compelling to strangers, then if you're not compelling, then then it's not going to it's not going to work. Nobody's going to want to listen. Nobody's going to want to hear what you're saying. They can have a conversation with anybody. So it has to be compelling. It has to be entertaining. You have to put it out in a certain way. If you don't, then you're wasting your time, and nobody's going to listen to you. So did you find a, a challenge to bring that adequate amount of energy to your show every day? No. I, I you know, I was, it depends on the, on the co-host I have. That's the, okay. So that's another good example of, of why there's a problem with, with co-hosts. Because if your co-host isn't as passionate as you are uh, and your co-host, you, you say something, you throw it to your co-host and your co-host gives you basically nothing or very little. And, you know, then, then it, it drains the entire show. So then you, then you have to say, okay, you know what? This person is, is being a, a, more of a, a hindrance than they are a help. It, it's more difficult to do some on your own, but I'm going to, apparently for a while, I'm going to have some co-hosts that ro- rotate in and it's, it's just going to be me on some of the shows. And so what I'll do is to augment that is I will add um, news clips, audio clips, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pontificate on, on what they've said and give my own ideas as well. So how do you bring that amount of energy? I think, see, the energy level, I, I think, is, the, is, the, is a big thing that people don't understand about hosting a radio show, how much energy is re- required. So... Any tips or anything that you can share from your own experience so that you can rev up to bring an adequate and compelling amount of energy to your show? Only speak about things that you're passionate about or that you think you have some knowledge on. If you don't have, any, if you don't have adequate enough knowledge on, on, the, on the issue and, uh, and, you know, you're, or, and you're not somewhat passionate about it, you're not going to bring enough energy to the show. You're just not. You you have to be energetic. You have to, uh, you can't be shy. You can't hold back. And and that's the downside about about radio versus podcasting. You you have to hold back a lot on radio, a lot more than you do on podcasting. On podcasting, you're pretty much open to to say whatever you want to say within, within, of course, there's always some limits, but not much. And so just just get yourself get yourself revved up. Think about something that you really are passionate about. Crime. Some stories you've seen the the, the 9-year-old girl that was punched over and over and over again in the head by the 14-year-old boy on the bus recently in the video. Um that's something I'm definitely going to speak about. And I, I think you're touching there on the second element that's essential for producing good good talk radio, and that is preparation. 
that uh, yes. the more preparation, the better. Uh, ideally, twice as much preparation for the amount of time that you're on air, I believe. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it, it, this is the Internet age. There's absolutely no reason why anybody isn't fully prepared, doesn't have tons of material to go on. You want to have more material than you're actually going to use. If you don't use all the material, that's fine. It's better to have too much than not enough. So you get video clips, or well, in this case, audio clips. You get audio clips. You get articles. You read, you read the information. You make sure that you have plenty at hand, little facts, little factoids here and there that you can throw in. And try to know as much about the situation as you can. Again, this is the information age. There's absolutely no reason why anybody should express an opinion on a podcast without having the adequate amount of, amount of information at hand. There'll be things I'll be talking about and I won't be sure about something. And I'll have my phone in one hand checking, checking the facts while I'm talking. Or if one of my co-hosts is speaking about something, I'll be checking a fact real quick. In the past, you just, you, you had papers that, you know, people would bring in or the, or the uh, board op would send you information. But with this, you've got, uh, you know, I've got my uh, iPad, I've got my, my, my iPhone. I've got all the information I need right at hand. How did you know when was the right time to cut off a caller? Um, when it started to lag, you can feel it. When it gets, when it get, when it starts to lag, and they and the, and the person's pretty much said what they have to say, and they're just kind of droning on at that point, then you just cut them off. Uh, who, who is so I, try, I try to give everybody mm-hmm. adequate time to speak and say what, exactly what they want to say, get their opinions out. And, and so, even if somebody disagrees with me, in fact, I prefer people that disagree with me. I, it's boring talking to people that always agree with me. So on a, a typical hour of uh, talk radio, what was the ratio of you talking to listener, listeners talking? What was the ratio of me talking to the listeners? What was the ratio of you talking versus the listeners talking? Oh, probably, I probably talked 70% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And what what were the biggest challenges, if any, in transitioning to a podcast from a background in talk radio? Um, You know, you have to take care of all the technical stuff yourself. You have to edit yourself. If you decide to edit, if there's editing to be done, you have to do it yourself. Have check the, check the sound levels yourself. You have to find the guests yourself. Um, you know, you got to hound people and send emails and try to call people and all the things that somebody else would have done in the past. Mm-hmm. I think most people would be surprised how little technical um, things people know that are behind the, the mic. They have other people do that for them. So you don't have all that anymore, but it gives you more control, I guess. You're more part of the process. Who who are some other right-wing pundits and talk show hosts who strike you as the least sincere aside from Sean Hannity? Mm, that's a good question. 
Um, uh, oh, what's his name? His, his name escapes me. Oh, I think he was on MSNBC for a while, then he went to Fox, and now he's got his own, he has his own network. Oh, Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck, that's right. Well, I don't know why I couldn't think of his name. Yeah, he's about as insincere as they come. He is he is the epitome of insincerity. He's a, he's a performance artist. He's not he doesn't mean anything he says. I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. The idea that uh, you know when I first saw him, I think he was on either on CNN or MSNBC, and I really liked what he had to say. And I I thought to myself, well, it would be really great if he was on Fox. And then he moved to Fox, and it's like he lost his damn mind. He had, uh, oh, uh, Ann Coulter on, and they're watching video clips and making fun of video clips. And he's, they're eating pudding. And uh, there's times when he would bust out into fake tears and cry. And he would go on Bill O'Reilly's show back when Bill O'Reilly had the factor. And he would uh, disrespect and mock Bill O'Reilly right to his face in the most obnoxious, childish way. He was he was a he was a mess. So I'd say him. He's a, he's a, he's the prime example of what I'm talking about. In fact, I said Sean Hannity because I couldn't even think of him. He's he's so off my radar. I don't I don't even think about him anymore. And uh, what are your views on Dennis Prager? I love Dennis Prager. I'm, I'm a I'm a huge Dennis Prager fan. I, I couldn't 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 have enough couldn't say enough good things about Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager is is the is the is the person that you should that every um, in my opinion my every broadcaster should strive to be Dennis Prager. Very intelligent man. Very well-educated. I believe he's fluent in Russian. Um, he studied abroad in Russia for a while. Um, and he's he's very morally sound. And and what about of the course. way he conducts his show? Any, anything that you admire about that? Um, I, I admire the fact that he, he seems like a genuine person. I don't like, I don't, I, I don't find, I don't, he has what's called the happiness hour. I don't like that. I, I I think that's just a kind of a waste of time. The male female hour, I'm kind of iffy on the happiness hour. Yeah. It's, I don't see the point. And will you listen to him with, with commercials or do you only listen in, you know, some, some form where they edit out the commercials? It depends. It depends if I'm out and about. Obviously, I'll listen to him with commercials, but uh, I try to listen to the podcast so I don't have to listen to the commercials. And uh, what, what other right-wing talk show hosts or pundits do you enjoy listening to? I like Laura Ingram. I'm a big Laura Ingram fan. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I, I think Laura Ingram is probably the one I enjoy listening to the most. Tucker Carlson, I used to like him. Um, I, I don't know. A- after a while, though, he's kind of rubbed me the wrong way. 
and I heard Michael him interview Savage. a guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Michael, Sorry. I can't. Uh, yeah, I, I have absolutely zero respect for Michael Savage. I remember one time he was so angry with Laura Ingram, and I, I don't remember why he said this, but Laura Ingram had cancer. I think it was breast cancer, but I could be wrong. And uh, he had said something about, um, I don't know. He said, I can't remember if he said he, he, I don't remember, but it was something disparaging about her cancer. And I think that's why he was actually let go from Fox. And you're talking about Michael so Savage. I just, yes. Yeah. I, I interrupted you when you were talking about, you heard Tucker Carlson interview someone. I heard Tucker Carlson interview a young teenage boy, and apparently the school had uh, had had organized the students to do a walkout to protest um, something to do with illegal immigration, protest uh, you know cracking down on illegal immigration, something like that, something along those lines. It's been several years back, and he interviewed this young boy. And he tried to say that the that that they create that the CN, that CNN created the sign for him. I believe that's what he said. And the the boy kept trying to say, "No, I, I actually I created it myself. They just told me to create it." And uh, and he kept talking over top of him when he would try to explain. And uh, I thought, well, you know, this guy's not not as sincere and and straightforward and forthright as I thought he was. Uh, who who has influenced you the most when it comes to conducting talk radio or a podcast? Uh, Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager and by far. What, what, I, I, what, what don't year get me did wrong. you discover I did, I, him? Oh, I discovered him in the early 90s. I discovered him in the early 90s. I don't remember exactly what year, but yeah, it was like early to mid-90s. So quite some time ago, probably, yeah, like maybe, I don't know, early 90s. I couldn't give you an exact year. And again, I interrupted you. You were saying, don't get me wrong about Dennis Prager. Um, no, I don't think it was about Dennis Prager. I don't recall. Oh, okay. I'm doing a really bad job. I keep interrupting and jumping in at the wrong, wrong beats. So when did you start paying attention to talk radio? Oh, uh, probably in the 80s. Yeah, I enjoyed the uh, – oh, don't – oh, I know what I was going to say. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed listening to people like Howard Stern. I never listened to Opie and Anthony. Um, I've listened to some of their clips on YouTube, but I never listened to Opie and Anthony. But I was a big Stern fan for a while, but he's – he's uh, his show's completely – gone off the rails so he's no longer worth listening to sad but true so one thing i noticed when dennis prager got a nationally syndicated show circa 1993 and 94 one thing i noticed was that i was invariably more angry at the end of listening to dennis prager like angry in the direction he he wanted it was that, right. you know, victimhood, you know, you're being, you know, victimized. It, it inevitably left me more angry. And I find that, generally speaking, with right-wing talk show hosts, that they do kind of stoke those those fires of anger. Is is that fair? Do you relate to that? Uh, I do. I do, because they bring up things that bother me in ways that, in ways that in, you know, 
it, it brings up all the feelings that I have about those situations and they do it. They're very artful about, you know, explaining the situation in such a way that it, it does evoke feelings of, of rage. Um, and I'm not an emotional person, but when I think about things like, you know, transgender or transvestite story hour, or I see a video on YouTube of uh, some kid going to a, you know, transgender strip club and them actually, you know, having the kid participate and dance and get money from men. And when I see these things, uh, you know, and I hear them talk about it on the radio, I, it, it drives me absolutely bonkers. You know, it's, it's uh, this, there's so many things that are happening that are, that are, you know, Western civilization is coming unraveled at the seams. And whether, you know, I, I think civilizations usually go in a pendulum swing and they've gone really, really far to the left. Now, one of the two things can happen, either that pendulum can swing back in the other direction eventually, or it can just collapse. And I'm not sure what's going to ha- which one's going to happen, but I don't hold out a lot of hope. And listening to other people on the radio that are expressing the views that are already in me helps me think through things, helps me really crystallize how I feel about different things. They say things that I, that I feel. And so that's what I try to do when, I, when, I, when I'm speaking, either when, back when I spoke on the radio or now that I'm on podcasting. I, I, I try to do the same things that, that, that I did in the past and that other, uh, other hosts do, like Dennis Prager. Um, and uh, hopefully, hopefully I make an impact on people that agree with me and, and need, somebody, need to know that there's somebody out there that feels the way they do besides just them and maybe a few of their friends. What do you think of uh, Mark Levin? Um, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. I don't dislike the man. I don't really hate the man, but I'm, I'm not a fan. Yeah, he sounds like a, a yelling, angry homeless guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. Mark, to me, Mark Levin and Michael Savage are not that different. Yeah. And have you paid uh, yeah. any attention to uh, John Ziegler? No. Okay. No, I have not. Mm-hmm. I used to listen to someone called Rusty Humphreys. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not. No. Was he? Where was he based? I believe he's based out of Texas. Okay. Huh. And were you about to say something? No. No. Okay. Sorry. Boy, I'm really doing a bad job reading beats. Uh, <laughs> no, you're, you're doing, you're doing, you're doing fine. Maybe, maybe I'm not, maybe not, I'm not being a good guest. I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to roll with the punches. No, I, I appreciate it. You so, know, I've interviewed a lot of people, but yeah. I, I haven't been interviewed very many times myself. What have and you so learned? It, it, yeah, it seems very strange. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what have you learned from interviewing people? I, I've learned that. I've learned that I'm a little bit more open um, than most people are, whether that's a good thing or whether that's a bad thing or, or somewhere in between. Um, Everybody, everybody has has a certain line they don't want to cross as far as their opinions and and their views on the world uh, for various reasons. And um, back when I was in radio, I, I had those lines. 
as much as I hate to admit it, I, there was lines I wouldn't cross. And uh, again, that's the best thing about podcasting. And most of those lines are gone now. But uh, you know, I, I've learned that I can. I've learned that I can, um, you know, speak freely. And uh, I kind of lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Yeah, just... that's that's okay. Let me let me um, bring it back to something you said. You, you mentioned that you're more open than most people. In what areas have you been open, say on on radio or in in a podcast that uh, most people would not be? Okay, so I'm more open. Pod, radio, I wasn't. I, I was. I, I spoke about abortion. A lot of people don't like to speak about abortion. I'm pro-life. I speak about it. Um, it's almost a, a no-no for most most broadcasters. Most conservative broadcasters will not spend a lot of time on abortion. They just won't. They might mention it here and there every once in a great while, but it's it's a it's a topic that most won't go to. So that's what that's how I was open on the radio that most weren't. As far as uh, as far as podcasting, are you are you sitting down? Yeah, sure. Are you holding on to something? Yep. Okay. <laughs> as far as podcasting goes, uh, I'm open about the uh, racial element of violent crime in the United States, and I'm open about the religious element of um, of terrorism worldwide. And most people won't. When you hear people complain about crime in the city, they'll say, well, that's what you get from a liberal city. But if you watch all these videos on YouTube, if you look at the crime stats, it's all, it's not all, but it's damn near all one group committing these things. And uh, I'm sorry to say, but that's black people. Now, what the solution is, I have absolutely no idea. I have no, I have no clue what the solution is. I wish I knew what the solution was. But we've tried everything. We've tried everything. We've tried welfare. We've tried. We've tried government housing. We've tried uh, set asides for government contracts. Um, we've tried uh, everything. Early, early, you know, we've tried uh, free. Uh, oh, ele- not elementary school, but um, oh, uh, pre-elementary. Uh, we've tried yeah, everything. Free, free kindergarten. Yeah, we've tried. We've tried everything, and. Nothing, nothing is fixing it. Nothing is fixing it. And so I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'll I'll give you a stat. Uh, Again, you might want to hold on to something. Your listeners might want to hold on to something. Black people are 13% of the U.S. population. They they account for 55% of the murders every year. Now, I want everybody to think about that. 13% of the population commits more murder then everybody else combined at 87% of the population. There's something wrong with that. It can't be because of slavery. It can't be because of the past. Jews went through horrible things. They're almost wiped off the planet. You don't see Jews out there committing that kind of violent crimes like that. You just don't. Roughly every year, nearly 38,000 white women are raped by black men. Every year, less than 20 black women are raped by white men. Not less than 20,000, less than 20. It's called a statistical zero. It's such a small number that it's almost impossible to express it in percentage. These are problems. These are major problems. If you look at every single violent crime, 
including mass shootings, believe it or not. If you look at every single violent crime, per capita, black people commit more. And people will say, well, most murders happen, they're, they're inside the race. One bl a black person murdering another black person, a white person murdering another white person, an Asian person murdering another Asian person. And this is true. But more black people murder Asian people than Asian people murder black people. More black people murder Hispanic people than Hispanic people murder black people. More black people murder white people than white people murder uh, black people. It's just a fact. If facts are racist, then so be it. I mean, it is what it is. Men commit more crimes than women. Is that sexist? Am I anti-man? No, I'm just stating the facts. Men commit more crimes, especially more violent crimes than women do. It is what it is. And now, I, I, don't know, I don't know why people are so determined to deny reality. You cannot solve a problem if you refuse to admit what the problem is. Now, how would if I you... Say I can't, if I say I can't drive to Cincinnati and I have, because I have no gas in my car, or I'm, if I say I can't drive to Cincinnati because somebody won't let me to drive to Cincinnati, and, but the whole reason is I don't have gas in the tank. I can keep saying I can't drive to Cincinnati because somebody won't let me. But if I don't have, if unless I realize that it's the problem is that there's no gas in the car, the situation is never going to get solved. I'm sorry, go ahead. Now, how would you be asked to talk about something this charged on talk radio? Never. Not, not to this extent. How how are you allowed to talk about these things on talk radio, like the racial nature of crime? You have to pretend like it's the 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 it's just the Democrats. And don't get me wrong, the liberal Democrats they they do encourage this behavior through their weak stance on crime, through their through their through their inability to hold people accountable for their criminal actions. So they do they do create the atmosphere, and they do you know. The no cashless, the cash, the uh, cashless bail, um, you know, the weak, you know, giving light sentences to violent criminals, things of that nature. They, they do create a, a situation. They do they create the environment that, that breeds this kind of behavior, but facilitates it. But they don't create it. They don't create the crime. So I, I don't know what the solution is. I really wish I did. Now, when so, talking about the t Islam and the religious component in, uh, say, uh, some some terrorism, how much are you allowed to go there in talk radio in your experience? You're allowed to be, go a little bit further, but you have to say say ridiculous things like, "Oh, it's uh, it's not the religion; the religion's been hijacked." Now, I'm sorry, folks, but if anybody knows about the life of Muhammad and the type of behavior that he that he exhibited, and the way that he gained power, how is how is Islam hijacked? Islam hasn't hijacked. ISIS and and the and uh, and the Hezbollah and the various terrorist organizations, they're living out the the the, the teachings of Muhammad. 
when they strap a bomb to themselves and blow up something, or when they chop people's heads off, or they stone women to death for being for not covering their face, they're living out the, exactly what they what Muhammad taught. So how is that hijacking the religion? If you're if you're doing exactly what the founder would have done, then when was the religion hijacked? And you can't say that on you cannot say that on radio. You have to you have to go through all the nonsense, all the BS about oh it's a religion of peace and and uh, you know it, it, it's it, forget about if you look at the opinion polls. Not just the people in the Middle East, but people in places like the UK, of Muslims in the UK, talking about how they think that Salman Rushdie deserved to go to prison or something else for writing the satanic verses. Uh, so, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Uh, approximately how many radio stations did you work for? Seven. Wow. And... What was what was your life like uh, working in radio when you weren't on the air? It, you must have been moving around quite a bit. Uh, what did that do to the rest of your life? It made it chaotic. It made it chaotic. It made it unstable. It was a pain. You know, anytime you have to move, any any kind of move, I don't care if you're moving from one part of the town to another, to another part of the town, it's going to disrupt your life. But if you're moving from one city to another, or even one state to another, it's it's taxing. It puts things up in the air. It makes things, you know, as I said, chaotic. It means that it's difficult to get deep friendships. And you'll have friends, but they're telephone friends. Sometimes you might work with people for a while, but it never lasts. Now, if you're a religious person, wherever you went, there would be a church or a synagogue that you could find almost instant community with. Uh, did you sure. still find strangers, substitutes? Yeah, yeah did, did you like stamp clubs? I don't know. Did you find like some kind of communal substitute for religion? No. I can't be around most other atheists. Most other atheists are far left-wing liberals. And uh, they, they, you know, I'm their, I'm their kryptonite. They do not want me around. They run from me like they're like they're, like their asses on fire. They don't like to debate me, because most of the things that Christians say, most of the conservatives say, they'll say, well, you're just saying that because you believe in God. But they don't have that for me, so they don't know what to do. So I'm very, very frustrating for other atheists. Which is good. I like that. Now, from, from a secular perspective, the, the primary purpose of religion is to provide comfort to people. And perhaps the primary reason we're seeing steadily steady decline in participation in religion is that people are increasingly more effectively finding comfort in other areas, such as movies, TV, yoga, uh, various you know volunteer organizations, uh, therapy, medication, meditation, twelve-step programs. Where do, have you turned for comfort in your life? Nowhere. I've heard nowhere. I simply I, I express my views, my political views, my socio-political views. Um, I focus on politics. You know, I, I obviously I watch movies and TV, but 
no, no, no real, no real direction. No, I, I don't need a crutch. And uh, when did you first get diagnosed with cancer? Ooh, uh, back in I think May. And how how what what symptoms were you having? How did it happen? I was having uh, I was having uh, like a sore ache in my chest, and uh, apparently there was cancer at the the front of the chest, and there was cancer back inside the chest wall. Moved to my lymph nodes under my left arm. Um, I, apparently there's uh, and there was a, a lesion on my on my spine, my lower spine. They radiated the lesion on my lower spine, so that no longer bothers me. So when they found the cancer, were you already stage four? Uh, stage three or stage four. I'm not sure. And so what's your prognosis? They haven't given me one. I've asked several times. And they said they don't know. So my oncologist actually kind of let me know she was tired of me asking. So. But but haven't you done any research on your own? I have. I, I could live another 10 years or so. And how does your cancer manifest itself day in and day out? Chest pain? A little bit of ache, a little bit of soreness. Nothing, nothing too bad. And nothing to what, what what effect did the diagnosis have on your life? How did your life change as a result? It upset my girlfriend. My girlfriend's very, very upset about it. Me? I, I didn't know. I, I didn't, you know, it's one of those situations where you don't know how you're going to react until it happens. And uh, my reaction was almost zero. So I, I didn't know if I'd be curled up into the fetal position and crying or, you know, it doesn't sound like me, but who knows? You know, you don't, like I said, you don't know what you're going to do until you're in that situation. And it wasn't, it wasn't earth shattering for me. I'm not a really emotional person. So maybe that's, maybe that's a big part of it. I don't know. I was waiting for it to happen, but it just never happened. And do you have a, a bucket list? Um, not really. I've done a lot of things. I've been a lot of places. I've done a lot of things. So not really. I can't think of any particular thing offhand. I wouldn't mind winning the lottery. Other than that, <laughs> other than that, I, I, nothing I can really think of offhand. So is there what particular episode of your show that you've you've received the most attention for or was the most listened to? So the two most listened to and the ones catching up with the other pretty quick. Well quite some time ago I I did a interview with uh, Jim Goad. I don't know if you know who Jim Goad is. Yes. Okay, so I interviewed Jim Goad and uh that has the biggest one. That's a, you know, that's it it's, it's has a lot of listeners. I mean, tons and tons of listeners. And uh, then there's uh, the one with uh, Jared Taylor. And Jared Taylor is almost, and Jared Taylor happened long after the one with Jim Goad. 
and Jared Taylor is almost caught up with him, and I think it's I think he's going to surpass. And uh, what's for your, those what's of your... you not familiar with yeah. Jared Taylor, he's uh, he he founded the uh, uh, an organization called the American Renaissance. And in fact, a while back, Michelle Malkin, if you're familiar with Michelle Malkin, yes. she gave a speech at uh, at one of the Amaran conferences. Now, what's your what's your read on Jared Taylor? How would you describe him? Uh, the most honest man I've ever spoken to. Very honest, brilliant man. Fluent in Japanese, fluent in French. Well traveled. Um, very articulate. Just a just an all all around um, brilliant man. And he is very, very um, honest and open about his opinions and his beliefs. Not anti-Semitic at all, but he has, he holds the same issues and beliefs as I do with uh, blacks and, and Islam. And what's your read on Jim Goad? Jim Goad's kind of a flake. He's kind of a flake. He says a lot of things. I mean, he, he's a provocateur. I believe he works for uh, works with or for Gavin McGinnis now, and uh, he's he's a bit of a flake. If you look at his early stuff, he's 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 a very strange character. So, and I think a lot of times he tries to argue with people just for the sake of argument, not because he actually disagrees with what they're saying. He works at being a contrarian. If you're a contrarian, that's fine, but be legitimate. Don't uh, you know? Be sincere. Don't don't work at it. If you work at it, then it's, uh, it's fake. It's false. So which, which episodes off the top of your head are you most proud of? The Jared Taylor episode. By far. I've been, I've been trying to get a hold of him now for quite some time for an interview. And I was finally able to achieve it. I interviewed somebody, um, I interviewed, do you know who Paul Gottfried is? Yes. I interviewed Paul Gottfried, and he tried to hook me up with Jared Taylor, and for some reason it just didn't happen. And then I interviewed Jason Kessler, the organizer of January of, um, of the Charlottesville protest. And he got me in contact with Jared Taylor. That's, that's how it happened. Any, any other episodes you've done that you're particularly proud of? Yes. Um, oh, well, Robert Spencer. Now, a lot of people get Richard Spencer and Robert Spencer confused. Not Richard Spencer, Robert Spencer. Robert Spencer, Spencer is the founder and uh, the chief CEO of uh, something called Jihad Watch. Uh, Pamela Geller is, a, is an associate of his. So if you're familiar with Jihad Watch yes. or, or, uh, or uh, Robert Spencer, that was a really good interview. That was an excellent interview, actually. And uh, how would you compare the challenge of doing a show that's are most of your shows interview based or are most of your podcasts you uh, talking about the news? A little bit of both. There's very little about it. We talk about the news somewhat, but most of it is talking about sociopolitical issues. 
So talking about crime in general, um, talking about uh, illegal immigration, talking about terrorism, uh, talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, things like that. And what is your perspective on the Israeli versus Palestinian conflict? Um, whew, how do I put this? Um, call me Rabbi Kahana. <laughs> do you know who Kahana is? Yes. Yes. Okay. Call me. Call me Mayor Kahana. Yeah. That's my. That's my perspective. I think. Uh, I think Israel should expel all the Palestinians. Now, is, has think, there been I think an... the Palestinians? I think the Palestinians on the West Bank should be pushed into uh, to uh, Syria and Jordan, and maybe Lebanon. Uh, not Syria. Uh, I'm sorry. And uh, yeah, and uh, maybe Lebanon. And I think the uh, the ones in the uh, I think the ones in the uh, Gaza Strip should be pushed into uh, the Sinai Peninsula. So is there a trajectory to your thinking or have you always had these views? Um, you know, when I was younger, when I was a teenager in my early 20s, I was kind of, um, I would try to see both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But then when the Palestinians had the opportunity to have sovereignty, have some, you know, limited autonomy uh, and do their own elections, hold their own elections, they voted in Hamas. And so to me, that was that was pretty much the end of, of my sympathy for the Palestinians. When I see Palestinians, when I see mothers strapping and, and, and fathers strapping bombs, not to other people's children, but strapping bombs to their own children. Uh, and, and the one woman said she had five sons and she just wished she had more so that she could uh, martyr to them. When I see that. You know, you know the Hamas says we love, uh, we love, we value death more than more than the Israelis value life. I think that's pretty much. That means they're a death cult, and um, I, I can't respect that. And uh, a good idea, good good way to tell the difference between the Christian Palestinians. I mean, there's a there's a good experiment. If you look at the uh, if you look at the Palestinians, there's Christian Palestinians and there's and there's Muslim Palestinians. Both of them have conflict. Both of them have had terrorists that fight against the Israelis. The only group that commits suicide bombings and uses children are the Muslim Palestinians. In other words, they're in the same situation. They're in the same area. They're the same culture. They're the same everything. The only difference is the religion. And that's a, that's a really, really good example of the differences between Islam and the other Abrahamic religions. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, do you do you have any particular goals for your podcast from here? Well, obviously, I want to expand. I just want to, uh, I, I, I'm <laughs> now currently looking for a new co-host <laughs> that's going to be with me on a regular basis. Um. Unfortunately, uh, you know, Mendez and uh, is from Brazil, and my other co-host Samuel's from Eastern Europe, and they have very little. They have some knowledge of U.S. politics, but not enough. And and so I need someone who has more knowledge of what's going on in this country, 
that can truly be a co-host and and be a participant. Otherwise, it's you know. It, but I'll work it out. Would you go to an American Renaissance conference? Absolutely. H- have you been to one yet? I have not. But I, I, I okay. You want my bucket list? One of my one of you know that would be one of the things on my bucket list. Uh, to meet Jared Taylor in person, and to attend a, a, a. I just wish I could have been there when Michelle Malcolm gave her speech. Yeah, she used to be part of conservatism incorporated but she went a little too far well i you say too far i say just right well too far for conservatism right incorporated yeah i'm very happy with her trajectory as far as her uh her sociopolitical beliefs and uh what does your girlfriend think of your podcast uh nothing (laughs) <laughs> she's not really into, you know, sociopolitical issues. She's not talk- into, into all of this. I am, but she's not. Do many of your friends or family listen to your podcast? Uh, that I wouldn't know. I haven't asked and they haven't told me. Are there areas that you've been afraid to speak out on that you might start speaking out on you know the only the only time i thought that there might be a problem is when i spoke about transgender because it seems like on twitter if you say something against transgender and that's at least that's you know that's eased up a little bit but it seems like on twitter if you say something against transgender or or even seen as being um not 100 percent supportive of transgender there's a good chance you're going to get your account suspended or even uh, banned and so when I first did a couple of transgender topics on podcasting, I wasn't sure how it was going to go. That seemed to be the third rail. You know, you don't touch that or you get fried. And so I, I wasn't sure how that was going to go. But I've done a few of them now, two or three of them now, and it hasn't been a problem. And what what sort of job do you think Elon Musk is doing with Twitter? Not nearly what I thought he was going to do. I thought he was going to make it a free speech platform, but instead, instead of making it a free speech platform, he's made it, uh, you know, and some still is somebody else dictating. He now he's dictating. So censorship is censorship. I'm not a leftist. Leftists want leftists are okay with censorship if it's against the other people. Um, I'm I'm a conservative. I'm far right. I'm for free speech for everybody, including those I completely disagree with. And the idea that he doesn't like somebody, something somebody said to him, and so he bans their account is pretty petty. I mean, the guy's a, a multi-billionaire and uh, I think the richest guy in the world. And uh, he's having stupid arguments with people on, on nobody's on Twitter. doesn't make sense. So what, what books would you say have most influenced you? What books have mostly influenced me? Um, that's that's a difficult one. That's a very difficult one. Hmm. I liked Animal Farm. Uh, 
Um, I don't know. I, I really like some of Dennis Prager's books. I, I got to be honest with you. When I've got into the whole podcasting thing, I, I haven't. I don't do a lot of reading anymore, other than what it has to do with podcasting. I spend most of my time looking up issues for this. Uh, what do you think of uh, Nick Fuentes? I have no respect for the guy. Why? Why? Well, for one thing, I'm half Jewish and he hates Jews. That's one thing. Uh, for another thing, he hangs out with people like Alex Jones and uh, Kanye West and and people of that nature. And, uh, you know, I, I went just to, you know, I, I don't like to take other people's word for people's character. And so I went on his website where he where he uh, live streams and he says some pretty ridiculous stuff. So. I'm just not a fan of his whole whole shtick. Him and uh, oh, um, what's the other guy's name? The little black guy, um, Ali Alexander, and uh, a few of the others. Uh, there's some guy called Beardson Beardley, and and then um, oh crap, who's the other guy that just went to jail? Uh, baked Alaska. Baked Alaska. Yeah, these these people are not serious people. So and I have to respect the people, and I don't. And January 6th riots, so on a scale of 1 to 10, and let's say 9-11 was, was, I don't know, an 8, and Pearl Harbor was was a 10, uh, what what uh, what number would you give the significance of the... You broke up a little bit. Yeah, sorry, but sometimes, yeah. So what, what significance would you give the January 6th riots, January 6th, 2021? You say uh, 9-11 was an 8, and you sure that's not a 10? Fine. Let's say 9-11 is a 10. Um, like a 3 or a 4. It seemed horrible at the time, but nothing was really destroyed. It was just a bunch of jackasses going in and, and uh, taking pictures and walking around the Capitol. They shouldn't have done it. They needed to go to jail. Do they need to go to jail for 10 years or something? No, I, I, don't, think, I don't think it's... I don't think it reached that level. Uh, all the lies about people being killed. There was only one person killed, some woman named Ashley Babbitt. And uh, to be completely honest with you, and most people won't say this, she kind of brought that on herself. You know, you bust the glass out of a, a window and a door in the Capitol building and you're climbing through and you get shot back through the door. Um, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah. And so uh, on unbalanced, do you think uh, Donald Trump was more of a force for good or for bad? Good. And 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 how how highly would you rate his presidency? Um a 10 if he had got any any of the things he wanted to accomplish accomplished. If he had been able to build the wall and get the border secure, I mean, the problem is, is that, well, not the problem, it's a good thing, but it's also, you know, a double-edged sword, is that being a president doesn't make you a king. You know, you can't just say, we're going to build a border wall. We're going to we're going to stop immigration from certain countries or certain countries coming in. You can't just say that because there's other, there's other, you know, there's, there's checks and balances. There's other parts of the government that can, that can block your efforts. And so... Yeah, I, I think he did the best he could. So, 
I think uh, I think we need to shut the border down. We need we need to first of all we need not only do we need to stop illegal immigration. I think we need to stop immigration in general from everywhere for a while. I like the Australian system of uh, of merit based. So we need to do that. And uh, if you don't secure the border, then if you don't have a secure border that you can maintain, then you don't have a country. What was your perspective in 2002, 2003 at the prospect of invading Iraq? Iraq needed invaded. It needed invaded since the early 90s. Um, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush's father, decided not to go ahead and go right all the way into Baghdad. That was a mistake. In hindsight, that was a mistake. Because the only thing that he did was is that he, he just prolonged the problem. Um, we had The U.N. had sanctions, and the U.S. government and the U.N. in general had sanctions against Iraq. But unfortunately, Russia and France and various other countries were doing backdoor deals with Saddam Hussein, which means the, the sanctions meant nothing. Um, Kofi Annan, his, his son, whatever his name is, was doing business with Iraq. Uh, how that, how he was never criminally prosecuted for that. I don't, I don't really understand. And so, you know, technically, you know, Saddam Hussein already committed an act of war. He sent two men to the ranch to kill, to assassinate, um, George H.W. Bush. So that's an act of war. Um, when we had, when we created no fly zones so that, so that Saddam Hussein couldn't attack the Kurds, uh, the, they would fire at our planes. That's an act of war. So he needed removed. He needed removed one way or another. And the longer we waited, the less respect we get, the less serious people took us. And so I'm, I'm glad he was taken out. And uh, which which Republican politicians do you uh, li- like the most these days? Would you, for example, like to see Donald Trump running again in 2024? I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted. Uh, um, I'm I'm between Trump and DeSantis, but I think it's the, I think it's Trump's election to either accept or reject. I think if, if Trump runs, no, nobody in the Republican Party is going to beat him. Um, how Joe Biden, is, with his cognitive deficit, is going to be able to run a second for a second term, I have no idea. I mean, he was bad the first time. Now he, he can barely finish his sentence. Uh, he doesn't hardly know where he's at. A couple of times he tried to walk off the stage, which would have been, <laughs> would have been catastrophic. Um, I just don't know what would I, I don't know who his opposition would be, but as far as the Republican Party goes, it's going to be either him or DeSantis, and I think it's up to Trump whether he runs or not. I, I have to be honest with you. Most times I can give you a straight answer. I can say yes this or yes that. Uh, I'm conflicted. I can see some ways where Trump would be better because Trump just doesn't give a damn and he's just going to do what he thinks is right. But I also can see how how DeSantis would be has less baggage and uh, might have a better chance at a general victory. But uh, I'm not sure that he has the same um, ability to just do what's right. 
Okay, I'm going to uh, move on for today. Anything that you'd like to promote or any final words for today? Any final words for today? Always be yourself. Always say how you feel. We only have one life. We only have one chance. If, even if you believe that you die and you go to some magical heaven in the sky and, and live forever, you only have one life here. Be sincere. Be legitimate. Be honest. Be forthright. Don't be afraid. I think that's it.